in my first year of teaching at NNU, if you didn't know this, I used to teach at NNU, uh, literary history. First year, that was 15 years ago. I was really keen about connecting with students, getting to know them, um, spending time with them, influencing them for the kingdom. That's, that's why I was there. And in that first year, we had no friends. We moved here from Indiana. That meant there was lots of time for coffees and lunch. And there was this one guy, he was a senior, and he, he was a puzzle to me, because he would seek me out. He clearly wanted to talk. He, he wanted to, to talk ideas. Uh, he seemed to want approval, but he resisted conversation about spiritual things. So he loved philosophy, he loved ideas, would talk all day about that, but he didn't like thinking about the claims of Jesus or what those claims meant for today. So if I would steer, if I'd begin to talk about ultimate things, uh, he would redirect. And I wasn't trying to get him to any sort of conclusions, but I care about truth. I care about reality. And so I would always just go there, and, and then he would pull back. Theoretical, some... He'd talk with Aristotle and Plato all day. That'd be fine. But playing with ideas is really different than seeking truth. Playing with them is fine. Seeking truth is a different thing. So this, this was what kept happening. And one day in the middle of a conversation, I found myself saying, I, I didn't plan to say this, I just sort of found myself saying, you don't really care about truth, do you? What is it you're after? This is, uh, I'm not normally that direct. Um, <laughs> but somehow this was really relieving for both of us. Because it just it cut right through. And it, it was like a, an enchantment was broken or something. The, the mist dissolved. And we were finally talking some real clarity. And he said, no. No, I, I want to give the world a try. And he'd been raised in a Christian home. His parents actually worked for Focus on the Family. Uh, I, I want to see what I can do with it, what I can make with the world. And so from there on, he stopped pretending. He stopped going to church. Uh, he stopped hiding the foolishness he was getting into. I'm going to come back to him later, towards the end, not just sort of leave it there, but... Uh, a person can avoid that question for only so long. What is it you're after? Um, creatures have, we are creatures that have been given reason. That's one of the things that's, that separates us from the animals. We have reason, and so we must occasionally ask ourselves that question, what am I wanting? Because reason means choice. Having reason means we make choices. Uh, and it's, so it's making conscious decisions between this and that rather than just following the, uh, a sharp bodily impulse. That's what separates us from animals. And if, unless we would become beasts and just sort of give ourselves to, to being beasts, we do have to occasionally ask, what do I want? Why would I do this or that other thing? Not exercising that gift 
leads us to our animal nature. So as I mentioned last week, one of the reasons that we fast in Lent is to sharpen awareness of this distinction, to awaken us to, to this distinction that we don't have to just follow our bodily impulses. We bring our bodies into submission. That's part of what a fast does. We feed our souls on the life-giving word of God, strengthening that, that inner person. And so we're exercising and giving strength to the everlasting parts of us. The parts of us that when we come to the end of our earthly life, we'll go on and we'll continue into the eternal life. And we are bringing into submission these parts of us that we're going to leave. Disciplining this. And we do this willingly. That means with a good will. We want to do this. We're actively saying, I want more. I want other than what my body wants. Because your body will want good things for itself and will want destructive things. I want more than what my body tells me. So when a person does this, when you do this, even denying the slightest of the, the bodily demands, you will find yourself on spiritual terrain. See, even denying the slightest bodily command, you, you are yielding to the spiritual. Notice that I don't say this leads you to holy ground. Disciplining the flesh is a turn to the spirit. But there are unholy spirits as well as the holy one. So simply disciplining the flesh turns to the spirit, but isn't necessarily turning to the Holy Spirit. So for this reason, the people of Christ, the us, that when we enter into a Lenten journey, when we participate in Lent in some way, we find that we are in a spiritual battlefield. If you, we're, we're a couple weeks in now. If you have begun to deny yourself bodily demands, you are experiencing a spiritual battlefield. You are. I, I expect you are even aware of it. It can come so sharply. Lots of questions, lots of concerns uh, striking at us, striking at us. So here we are a few weeks in, and rather than just asking yourself, what is it that I want? You may be hearing the Lord himself ask, what are you seeking? What do you want? Now, as I understand it, and as the Apostle John seems to indicate, this is the primary question that every human being has to answer. What are you seeking? What do you want? In his human nature, Jesus himself had to answer this question. So, according to being the second Adam, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had to answer this question when he answered to the Father, Thy will be done. That is what I want. And he answered it many times in his ministry. Multiple times through the Gospels then, 
Jesus poses this question to people. What do you want? This morning, I want to look at one of the instances because John, the apostle, makes it the frame for Jesus' ministry. And he makes it the frame for being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus. If that's what we claim that we are, if that's what we have received, being a student, being a follower of Jesus, then this question is for us. If you ever want to know God, you will have to answer the question many times. So we do well to look at what's involved in it. What, what is, what's embedded in the question? What all is here? So turn, if you will, in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist has been out in the wilderness doing John the Baptist stuff, wearing a garment of camel's hair, and he's got a leather belt, and he's eating bugs and honey, and he is taking on visible markers of being a prophet. That's what all, that's, that is the description of Elijah. So John is purposely standing in the role of Elijah, with, and he's signaling, even by what he wears and what he eats. I am a prophet. And this is a big deal, because there hasn't been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. And now this wild young man, he's about 30 years old, he's out there in the desert announcing the one is coming, the anointed one, the Christ, the one who's been pro who was promised a millennia ago. And there he is announcing the Christ is coming, the Messiah in Hebrew, the chosen one. He's soon to be revealed. John is out there to prepare his way. People from all over Israel, in, in fact, Jews who have gone into a diaspora, who have left Israel, are coming because there's expectancy. They want to catch the news. Who is it? When is this going to come? Now, if that weren't enough, he's doing something else that catches everyone's attention. He's baptizing. Now, that, that might, for us, baptizing is a normal religious thing to do. Um, but what he was doing was he was doing it in a radically new way. So baptism was a standard Jewish rite. It was a standard ritual, but it was for pagans, non-Jews, who were becoming Jews. So uh, the act was overseen by the Jewish elders. That was important, not by some rando out in the wilderness. In the temple, by the elders, pagan men would be circumcised, and then their paganism and its uncleanness would be ritually washed. That's what they're washing off, that their paganism. Now, part of announcing the arrival of the Lord's anointed, John is baptizing Jews. That's alarming. We're already in. Why are you baptizing Jews? That's part of what the elders want to know. This is for pagans. And who do you say you are? Who do you think you are? And on top of that, he's been saying clearly, I am the herald of the Christ. This is what I'm doing. This is what this is about. I baptize with water, he says, but after me comes one greater than me because he was before me. The, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And then one day, 
We see in chapter 1, verse 29, John sees a man coming from the wilderness, and he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant. This is who I've been talking about. I myself didn't know him as the Christ until I saw the heavens open and, and the Spirit descend on him like a dove. I didn't know until that moment. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the one. That's framework. That's build up for this question that's coming. Now, how long? How long had Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel, how long had they been with John? We don't know. But they were his disciples. They were there by the river. They were, they were among those people listening, eagerly anticipating, where is he? We believe you. Where's the Christ? They're watching. They're waiting. But they are disciples of John. And that means they've accepted John's authority as God's prophet. They believe him. They believe what he says. They've accepted Christ is coming. They want to live righteously. They want to live the ways of God. They believe that God's prophet will correctly interpret God's law. They believe that this Christ is going to correctly lead the people. Why do I say all that? Because we could rightly call them church people. They're, they are church people. Church, by the way, is, it's an old English word for the Lord's household. It means this is the, the Lord's house, the Lord's gathering. They're church people. These guys were raised as part of the visible house of God, Israel. They're like us, many of us. And now they've expressed a readiness for the king to come. So they want what God wants. And so I want to say in some really fundamental ways that anyone who's been part of the church is like them at this moment in their life. So if you're a church person, you can relate to these disciples of John at this moment, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. So I want to suggest that God leads us, church people, back to this moment periodically. He leads us back. So see what happens. In verse 35, two of them are standing there. It's probably, we know one of them is Andrew, the other is probably John, because John never says his name in his whole gospel. But we always have his perspective. So Andrew, John, those are the two younger brothers. Peter and James are the elder. These are the younger brothers. And they're standing there with John. The Baptist says, there he is. Verse 35. And they get up and they follow him. They're following Jesus uh, hesitantly, probably to get a little closer. They, we don't know exactly what they're, they were hoping for here. Maybe they just want to see where he goes, and then they'll come and visit him later. Maybe they're going to see, is he going to start preaching? Is, what, what's he going to do? We aren't told. Um, and we're not told probably because their motives were a colossal mess. Like our motives. 
Why do we come to church? Why do we go to a Bible study? Why do we meet up with someone to talk about our lives? We've got mixed motives, all sorts of things. They have mixed motives. They don't even know their own hearts. You don't know your own heart. I don't know my own heart. It's a mess. But if we've gotten to this moment, as they've gotten to this moment of fixing attention on Jesus, and we've taken some kind of action to move in his direction, they went from standing with John to following Jesus. You're here. We've taken some kind of action to look at him and move in his direction. That says something. In some way, and this is a a part of our Lenten experience here, if we've taken the moment and we've begun to fix our attention on Jesus, in some sense, in some way, we've heard the Lord say, where are you? We've heard that initial question. Where are you? And we're assessing that. And we've desired a change. We've we've wanted some transformation. Our soul has stirred a bit. And so that the apathy that we normally feel, the apathy, the emptiness of uh, flesh seeking has lost out a little bit to some deeper hunger in the soul. Let me say that another way. Any time you find that you are fixing your attention on Jesus, that means that appetite has stirred to a greater degree than our normal apathy. People are naturally apathetic. That's significant. And so the Lord has said... Where are you? And we have answered, we need a change. We need a change, or I need saving. I I need saving from something, or I just can't stay here. I can't stay here any longer. And now we're looking to the Lord. We're brought to that moment for all sorts of causes. You may be there now. Whatever the cause, the Holy Spirit is involved. If you've come to the moment of saying, I need a change, the Holy Spirit's involved. Take courage. So the Lord wants to restore his people to himself. We've sung it. We've we've spoken psalms that declare it. The Lord wants people to be restored to himself. And there is no restoration without looking to him. So here by the Jordan, Andrew and John following, they want a change. They've moved in his direction, and Jesus turns and asks, what are you seeking? Or, what is it you want? What what is it you want? When we ask this of ourselves, and as I said, being, a, being people with reason, we will ask this of ourselves. What, what is it I want? It's powerful. It's clarifying. But when God asks the question, it cuts through all the clutter. Uh, 
It dissolves that mist. It dissolves all the excuses, all the justifying. And it exposes our souls. Because we can deceive ourselves for quite a long time about what we want. But we can't deceive God for the tiniest moment. We often think we're throwing a ruse over God's eyes and that he's tricked and he, know, he doesn't know that we actually want some other things. We can deceive ourselves a long time. When he asks the question, what is it you want? He asks it with two major inflections. As I was talking to the kids, you know, the Lord, we can hear voices in different inflections. The Lord asks this question in two major ways. First, what is it you're really after? My son, my daughter, what is it you really want? What are you deeply desiring? What are you hoping for that's driving your decisions unconsciously? You know, God designed us so that what the heart loves, the will chooses. What the heart, the affections of the heart, what the heart loves, the will will choose. The mind then justifies. It's only after we've already chosen that the mind justifies what we really want. So what is it that drives the way you make choices? Today. What is it that's driving your choices? How you invest your time, your spending, that's a real tell, or your saving. How you pour yourself into certain experiences, or maybe why you are isolating. Why do you isolate? Why are you doing that? You're seeking something in all of those choices. The heart wants something. It wants something. You have a desire for something. And it's driving your choices. So recall that this question comes when we're finally looking to the Lord. So that <clears throat> we're looking to him. And in, in the same, with that same inflection, he's asking, what is it you really want? He's also asking there, how does that pursuit measure against your desire for me? That is, what are you seeking? And if it's not satisfying you, you're looking in the right direction now. What are you, what are you really after? And to that, Andrew and John answer, Rabbi, where are you staying? We're seeking to be there. We're there, where you are. If that's our answer, along with them, if we are saying, I'm aware now of this desire for you, and I want that, and I just want to be where you are, then the Lord will answer the same way he answered them. Come and see. Come. It's an invitation. He wants to restore us to himself. That where he is, we may also be. He wants us to be with him and him with us. And so this is the ultimate question of, of discipleship, of uh, ongoing change. 
because it's resettling the central priority. This resettles, it reorients who we are. God made people to love him. And only when we want him most are we experiencing what he wants for us. Only then are we experiencing his design, the the full gift of life. So he asks us the question, what are you really wanting in order to restore us to himself? If you hear that question, this Lenten season, if you hear God say, what do you want? Hear it as an invitation. He is saying, I offer you myself. There's a second inflection related. Andrew and John, they've heard that this is God's anointed king. They're they're following him as the king. They've believed that. So they are thinking and they know this guy, this Christ, has all access to what's the father's. He's rich in spiritual things. He's, He's king. So as king... Jesus asks, the second inflection, what do you want? What do you want? This is a king on his throne with a supplicant. What is it you want? He has a willingness to give, to give whatever will be good for his followers. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you, because you've come to the right place. You've come to the right place person. So if this is the question the Lord is asking you, if you hear him say it that way, what do you want? His voice effectually is giving you good desire. Him asking the question is effectively raising right desire in you. What I'm saying is, his question activates, grows the right desire. If you're hearing the Lord say, what is it you want? You're building relationship. You're engaged in conversation with the king. He's a, the fact that you might answer that question is that he, he has stirred faith in you. And it can't be manufactured. You must actually be looking to the Lord so that uh, him asking, his voice itself pushes out the flimsier desires. If you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. When you hear the Lord's voice, it's like, why would I ask for anything else than to you, than to talk to you, than to know you? It pushes out the flimsier, shallower desires. And then we will be answering. Thy will be done. That's actually what I want. Thy will be done. No, ask, ask. I thought I wanted this thing. I think I want your will. That's transformation. It happens when we hear his voice. Remember that student that I began with? Come full circle. Ten years on, he got back in touch. 
And he had, he had gone into it. He had tried endless adventure. He'd been all over the country, dabbled in all the stuff, uh, experienced destruction. And eventually he stopped long enough, stopped that, that seeking enough to hear, where are you? And he realized where he was. He realized he was in a pit. And he needed change. And he heard God ask. <clears throat> this is strange. He heard God ask, but using my voice in his memory. What is it you're after? And as he sat there this time, he wanted the truth. He, he wanted the truth. And... And he came for it. And he found it. So do we want the truth? Do we want our own good? Do we want our own good? Can we say, thy will be done? And I think it's only the voice of God asking that question that can, can cut through to the real answer. We are so self-deceptive. I don't think we can ask the question of ourselves and get the true answer. Only when he asks it. But he is willing to speak if you're willing to obey. So where are you And what do you want? If that question lingers with you, engage it. Lord, you are the one who brings transformation in our lives. We admit, if I could speak for this congregation, we admit we cannot save ourselves, we cannot transform ourselves. We need the work of your Holy Spirit in us renewing our minds, renewing the spirit that you intended for us. So we, we ask that. Lord, would you be speaking to us, be asking the piercing questions in the name of Jesus.